John chapter 11, and we'll read it from verse 1. Now, a man named Lazarus was ill. He was from Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. This Mary, whose brother Lazarus now lay ill, was the same one who poured perfume on the Lord and wiped his feet with her hair. So the sisters sent word to Jesus, Lord, the one you love is ill. When he heard this, Jesus said, This illness will not end in death. No, it is for God's glory, so that God's Son may be glorified through it. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed where he was two more days. And then he said to his disciples, Let us go back to Judea. But Rabbi, they said, a short while ago, the Jews, were tried, the Jews there tried to stone you, and yet you're going back? Jesus answered, Are there not twelve hours of daylight? Anyone who walks in the daytime will not stumble, for they see by this world's light. It is when a person walks at night that they stumble, for they have no light. After he said this, he went on to tell them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I'm going there to wake him up. His disciples replied, Lord, if he sleeps, he will get better. Jesus had been speaking of his death, but his disciples thought he meant natural sleep. So when he told them plainly, so then he told them plainly, Lazarus is dead. And for your sake, I'm glad I was not there so that you may believe. But let us go to him. Then Thomas, also known as Didymus, said to the rest of the disciples, let us also go that we may die with him. On his arrival, Jesus found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb for four days. Now Bethany was less than two miles from Jerusalem, and many Jews had come to Martha and Mary to comfort them in the loss of their brother. When Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went out to meet him, but Mary stayed at home. Lord, Martha said to Jesus, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But I know that even now God will give you whatever you ask. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha answered, I know he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die. And whoever lives by, by believing in me will never die. Do you believe this? Yes, Lord, she replied. I believe that you are the Messiah, the Son of God, who is to come into the world. After she had said this, she went back and called her sister Mary aside. The teacher is here, she said, and he's asking for you. When Mary heard this, she got up quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet entered the village, but was still at the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews who had been with Mary in the house comforting her noticed how quickly she got up and went out, they followed her, supposing she was going to the tomb to mourn there. When Mary reached the place where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet and said, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come along with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. Where have you laid him? he asked. Come and see, Lord, they replied. Jesus wept. Then the Jews said, see how he loved him. But some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man have kept this man from dying? Jesus, once more deeply moved, came to the tomb. It was a cave with a stone laid across the entrance. Take away the stone, he said. But Lord, said Martha, the sister of the dead man, 
By this time there is a bad odour, for he's been in there four days. And Jesus said, Did I not tell you that if you believe, you will see the glory of God? So they took away the stone. Then Jesus looked up and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this for the benefit of the people standing here, that they may believe that you sent me. When he had said this, Jesus called in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The dead man came out, his hands and feet wrapped with strips of linen and a cloth around his face. Jesus said to them, take off the grave clothes and let him go. No guilt in life, no fear in death. But we can only say those words because of the Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you for him. And Lord, as we look at this great story that will be familiar to many of us in John chapter 11, would you thrill us once again as we come face to face with Jesus? Remind us, Lord, of what he is like. Show us his sovereignty, his compassion, and his wonderful power once again this evening. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, there's not many things in this life as horrible as hearing those dreaded words. There's nothing more the doctors can do now. Or those words, you'll, you'll need to take a seat because we've got some bad news. Or those words, I'm so sorry, but she's dying. Death is... Well, it's an extremely difficult subject, isn't it, to think about, to talk about. Often in, in British culture, the, the typical response has been silence or the, the stiff upper lip. Uh, one tears allowed at the funeral, but make sure no one's watching. That, that kind of thing has been in the air, hasn't it? Yet, of course, it's a reality of living in the broken world that we live in that each one of us, at one point or another, will be affected by death. I know many people here would have, you would have experienced that midnight phone call that that hits you, doesn't it, in the pit of the the stomach of knees over the phone. Death has often been called the great interruption, tearing brothers from sisters, parents from children. Perhaps if you're here tonight and you've not been affected by death in one way or another, we'll, without seeming too bleak, live a few more years and, and you will. It leaves many, of course, doesn't it, seemingly with no hope, no answer, no comfort in the face of this greatest of all enemies. In fact, for many people, the, the Bible would probably be the last place they would want to turn on this topic. Yet as we look at John chapter 11 this evening, we'll see that God, he does indeed have something to say in the face of death. We're in John's gospel where the reading was taken from tonight. And and throughout John's gospel, I'm sure many of you will know, Jesus makes seven I am statements or the the famous I am sayings. At this point in John, he's already said, hasn't he, that he is the bread of life back in chapter 6, that he is the light of the world, chapter 8, that he is the gate and the good shepherd just previously in chapter 10. 
Yet I think this is the big one, isn't it? Chapter 11. I am the resurrection and the life. And so as Jesus comes face to face with the death of a friend in this chapter, we'll see his sovereignty, his compassion, and most of all, his power, giving us the resources that we need, we desperately need, in the face of death. Three points then as we go through this passage together. First of all, the delay points to Jesus' glory. Straight away then, we're introduced to to a man called Lazarus at the beginning of chapter 11, and we're told Jesus knew him already. That wasn't the case always with Jesus meeting people in the Gospels, but he he knew that Lazarus and his family as well. In fact, more than that, in verse 3, we're told that he loved them. Maybe this was a family where Jesus could slip off his sandals and enjoy a meal with the family. He knew them, he loved them. Yeah, the problem is clear, Lazarus we're told in verse 1, is, is ill. Now a man named Lazarus was ill. Or verse 2, this Mary, whose brother Lazarus now lay ill. Or verse 3, Lord, the one you love is, is ill. You can't miss it. Lazarus is sick. And this isn't a case of the man flu, but is at death's door. And Mary and Martha, Lazarus's sisters, well, they send word to, to Jesus. And, um, and this isn't a kind of, Jesus, if you've got a little bit of room in your itinerary, can, can you pop by? Or if, if it's convenient, if it suits you, could you come and, and see us? No, this is, well, the, the one you love is dying. He's sick. Come now. Of course, good friends and, and family don't delay, do they, with that kind of message? So uh, my cousin, a few years ago, Sarah, she was in Australia on a, on a gap year a few years ago, sort of enjoying Bondi Beach or whatever it's called, and, you know, the sites of Sydney Harbour Bridge, that kind of thing. And one night she went out and was hit by a car, suddenly. And of course, the phone call came back to the UK. And what did my uncle and auntie do as they heard the news? Well, of course, they chucked whatever clothes in the, in the bag and got on the first flight because they wanted to get there to be with her in intensive care. It was touch or go whether she was going to make it. Of course they did. And actually, amazingly, Sarah made a, a full recovery. She got better. It was wonderful news. But they didn't delay going out there. Of course they didn't. And from what we know about Jesus, as you read the Gospels, what would we expect him to do? Drop everything and go and be with Lazarus. Or or maybe even heal him at a distance. We know he can do that. Surely that would be the loving thing, we think, for Jesus to do. Yet his response is baffling. Look at verse 4. We're told Jesus said, This illness will not end in death. No, it's for God's glory, so that God's Son may be glorified through it. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister, and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he went straight away. No, I didn't say that. Look at the Bibles again. Verse 6. When he heard Lazarus was ill, he stayed where he was two more days. Why? Why would he, why would he do that? It, first appearance, is it, it seems uncaring, outrageous. Until we see the fact that this is not a callous delay, but it's instead a genuine act of love. Something unusual, something extraordinary is going to happen which would bring God's great glory. 
Now, so tonight we get a window here, don't we, into God's perspective, God's timing. And we see that this is so that God might be glorified. It's the lens through which we're to read the rest of chapter 11. Jesus is not being cruel here. Rather, verse 4, this is for God's glory, so that God's Son may be glorified. Now, we talk a lot, don't we, about God's glory. We sing of Jesus being glorified. Maybe we don't often stop and think, what, what does that actually mean, God's glory? And Well, in John's gospel, his glory is, is God's majestic power and splendor breaking into this world, ultimately through Jesus, resulting in him deserving praise and honor. It is right for us to glorify God. Yet the glory that Jesus deserves was not recognized by many. Verses 8 to 10, we get a a hint of that as we're reminded that some had tried to stone Jesus. Verse 11, back to the story then. After delaying, Jesus tells his disciples that Lazarus has fallen asleep, but that he will wake him up. And as often the disciples, maybe they go over in the corner for a little team talk and What's he talking about? It's a little bit cryptic as they're scratching their heads and, and Jesus spells it out for them. Verse 14, Lazarus is dead. And for your sake, I am glad I was not there. Why? So that you may believe. First appearances, first sight for them. On the ground level, it seems, doesn't it, that Jesus doesn't care in the way that we think he should go there straight away. We think maybe, does he care about Lazarus and his family? And maybe we felt that in our lives. Maybe we think God can't be bothered about us or our problems. Or even worse, we perhaps have wondered, he, he cares, but, but he delays when we want him to act now in our lives. Maybe we felt that. Perhaps we can think of times where we wanted God to do something now, and he just hasn't. Uh, It's left us confused, perhaps, or bitter in our lives. Where we've prayed for a sick child, and they've died. Where we've wanted chronic pain to go straight away, and it's still there today. Where we've prayed and desired for a a husband or a wife, and that hasn't happened. Where we've been desperate for a family member to become a Christian, and they haven't yet. Where we've wanted bullying at school to stop, and it's still going on. Perhaps deep down we, we think, if, if God loved me, he would end my pain and suffering right, right now, wouldn't he? I wonder whether we've ever considered that if Jesus did fix all our problems, all our suffering right now with a, with a click of the fingers, it, it might not actually be what is best for us. He could do it. But because he loves us, sometimes he delays. We shouldn't view God's delay as a betrayal or contradiction of his love for us. Of course, these verses, they remind us as well that that as humans, we are limited. We we have an on-the-ground view, don't we, of what is going on? But there is a divine view. There is a bird's-eye view, if you like, of what is happening. We can never comprehend God's workings in their, in their completeness in our lives. And that's hard, isn't it? We want to be in control. We want to know all the details. Yeah, this reminds us that even in the mess of life and 
failing perhaps to understand how God can sometimes be working. He's always acting out of love. As I said, the frustration for us in our lives is that we don't always see the full story, do we? We don't always see the big picture. Yet actually in John 11, we, we do get to see the big picture as the story continues. And the second heading that we have is this, the tears point to Jesus' compassion. After Jesus announces Lazarus' death, Jesus and his disciples, they head out. It's, it's a four-day walk to Bethany. So it's a pretty solid walk, isn't it? Four-day walk, there's no Ubers that they can catch there. Uh, and we, we sort of ask, why? It's too late. All they can do now is surely sort of pick up a, a with deepest sympathy card and a, a peace lily from the Tesco Bethany store. You know, what else are they going to do at this point? But after four days walking on the scorched, earthy roads, they arrive, and they arrive to this place that is a scene of deep mourning. Now, there are cultural differences, aren't there, in the way that we grieve and the way that we mourn. I had a friend at a church I used to be at from Zambia, a guy called Patrick. Uh, he told me that in Zambia, women would sometimes for four days lie on the floor howling and screaming when someone dies. That's quite different than maybe the approach that Britain has often taken in the past, but different ways of mourning. And, and actually in a Middle Eastern context like we have here, I'm told that the community would often come together for 30 days to grieve the death of someone like Lazarus. And it's into this context of tears that the story focuses in and zooms in on Lazarus's two sisters, Mary and, first of all, Martha. Look again at verse 21. Lord, Martha said to Jesus, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But I know that even now God will give you whatever you ask. This is Martha's, if only. If only. Yet notice the extraordinary confidence that she still has in Jesus to maybe do something, even though her brother is dead. And Jesus here both confirms and challenges the grieving Martha. Look at verse 23. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. And Martha answered, I, I know he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. But Jesus said to her, I I'm the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die. Now Martha has grasped the Jewish teaching of the day. She, she rightly believed that there would be a resurrection, a, a future day where God would right all things in the end. But that doesn't seem to give her a lot of help in the here and now. What she hadn't grasped was that in the person of Jesus standing right in front of her, the future had pushed into the present with this I am statement. I am the resurrection and the life, Jesus says. Now what does that mean? Well, Jesus is saying, if you believe in me, if you have faith in me, you will die like every other human being. But death is not the end. There is life after death for the Christian. Wonderful, eternal life that only I can offer, Jesus says. Now that is a titanic statement, isn't it? That Jesus is making. That the resurrection is not just a Christian doctrine or a, or a Christian teaching, 
But the resurrection comes through a person. No life can be found outside of Jesus Christ. And Martha's response is wonderful, isn't it? In verse 27, she believes. She believes and she grabs her sister, Mary, to come and see. And uh, I think here, apart from the cross, we, we get a glimpse of Jesus at his most vulnerable and his most intimate. This time it's Mary, not Martha, with her desperate, if only, in verse 32. If you had been here, my brother would not have died. It's hard to imagine, isn't it, what she was going through, suffering, the death of her dear brother. Perhaps she was glad to see Jesus, but also a little bit bitter that he hadn't been there a week before when he could have done something. Perhaps she was feeling. And so Mary and the group with her, they're crushed and they're weak and they they burst into floods of tears. And we wonder, how will Jesus react to this scene in front of him? What will he do? What will he say? Well, the end of verse 33, did you see there we're told that Jesus was deeply moved. In fact, a better translation there, he was anguished and disturbed, agitated. The same word that's used there is is used in Greek literature at the time to describe a, a snorting horse going into battle. He's so caught up in the emotion and pain of the situation that Jesus gasped out loud. And we're told simply in the shortest verse in the Bible, verse 35, Jesus wept. As a side note here, I think it's a challenge, isn't it, to the kind of British culture that says, pull it together, don't show your emotions. Well, Jesus felt it was okay to weep, the right thing to do. In fact, we see later in the Bible that the Bible encourages us to weep with those who weep, mourn with those who are mourning. In other words, if we're Christians, we've got a lot of crying to do. Jesus wept. Really good friend of mine, a girl called Nat. A few years ago, she had a niece, a little girl called Sophie, who was born. And they knew very early on that things weren't going well with Sophie. She was born prematurely. There was fluid in the brain, a problem with her heart. And the parents were told at a very, very early stage, it's unlikely that she'll live for, for more than a few days. Can't imagine how hard it would have been for the parents at that time. How awful it would have been in and out of the hospital, sleepless nights, uncertainties about many things going on. But they said the parents said one of the, the big comforts at, at that time was... Uh, a man called John Wyatt, might be a name that's familiar to a few here tonight, is an expert in, in medical ethics, he's a Christian man. And uh, he had actually been involved and in, in invented part of the technology that was being used for the incubator at UCL Hospital, where this uh, little girl Sophie was. And so you know what it's like sometimes in Christian circles, all it takes is a few phone calls and, and John Wyatt's on the, other, the end of the phone. And John Wyatt came in to the hospital, he wasn't working, but he came in. And he spoke to the parents of Sophie. He's an incredibly well-trained man. And he talked through the the process and the treatment and and exactly what was going on. He he didn't do that in an overly scientific way of, you know, the PhD tells me that this tube goes here. And He lost all of that. He sat with them and, and they said he wept with them. He cried with them. He didn't know them before. 
And they said, that was so powerful, so helpful. Amazingly, with much prayer, Sophie got better, and she's a healthy little girl at school today. But here, Jesus, in our story, he gets involved, doesn't he? He gets involved with the, with the mess, and he is angry at death. It's not the way that the world was made. Isn't that a good thing that he doesn't shrug his shoulders and stay at a distance like Allah or the Buddha? But he enters in with tears and love, knowing and experiencing pain himself. And so we today can know that Jesus weeps with you. He doesn't stand on the touchline, but he's on the pitch with us, if you like, in our trials and in our suffering. God is not passive, but as Hebrews 4 would say, we do not have a high priest who is unable, unable to empathize with our weakness. But with Jesus' delay here and his compassion, the question still lingers, doesn't it, perhaps for us? In the face of death, is all that Jesus is offering a kind of metaphorical arm around the shoulder? Or is he able to offer more? Well, the third thing we see is this. The command points to Jesus' power. Now, if you're one of the disciples and you've been with Jesus through the Gospels, perhaps at this stage in the story or in the proceedings, you're, you're starting to get a little bit nervous, perhaps. <laughs> You've been around uh, long enough to know that Jesus doesn't always play by the book or do the, unexpect, or do the expected. And so the crowd of people are there and they're mourning and they're weeping and they're gathered round Lazarus' grave. And so verse 39 would be the last words that you would expect to hear. Take away the stone. Now the commentaries say that the tombs that were around at that point would have probably had eight people in one tomb. There were large, large tombs in that culture. Of course, this is horrendous what Jesus is saying if he is unable to follow through with what he's promising. I don't know if the church here at Emmanuel has a pastoral support team, but you imagine they'll be on the, kind of on the edge here if Jesus has said these words and they think, well, we need to step in and clear up the mess of these words in this situation. Maybe there's gasps and, and whispers in the crowd. What's he doing? What's he, what's he saying? And Martha speaks up in verse 39. I love the emphasis. You see in verse 39, we're told Martha, the sister of the dead man, just in case the chapter, we hadn't got the point that Lazarus was dead. We're told once more, more time there. And she says, well, by this time, there, there is a bad odor. He's been in there for four days. Those of you who grew up familiar with the King James Version, he stinketh, Lazarus stinketh, it says uh, at this point. As the tension builds, we see in verse 42 that all of this is being done for the benefit of the people there so that they might believe that Jesus is God's sent son. It's all been about this moment where Jesus might be glorified. That's what the whole chapter has been about, verse 4, so that people might believe the reality about Jesus Christ, that he really is who he says he is. So maybe in the crowd of a couple of the bigger lads, bigger fellows in the crowd are tapped on the shoulder to go up to the, to the tomb. And we ask the question, do, does Jesus have power? 
Does he have authority over even death itself? And maybe into a deafening silence or noisy outrage, I don't know. Jesus in loud in a loud voice says three words, three clear words. Lazarus, come out. Imagine being there. It's heart stopping stuff, isn't it? Going back to that hospital. And the girl, this baby girl, Sophie, my friend's niece. Just imagine as all that was going on with all the uncertainty, if, if one of the receptionists at the hospital at UCL uh, thought it would be a good idea to come up and chat to the parents herself. And uh, she came up and said, hey, everything's going to be fine. Uh, it's all going to be okay with your, with your daughter. I'll give her some medication. I'm not quite sure which one, but this one will do. And I'll take out this tube. and Everything's going to be okay. Well, that would be cruel if she had no medical experience, wouldn't it, for someone to do that? But if that was John Wyatt, you remember the guy who had, who had invented this part, this part of the incubator, if it was him coming and he said, look, everything's going to be okay. You can go home tomorrow. Well, he invented the incubator technology. That's very different, isn't it, than the receptionist. And Jesus, too, in this story here, has authority. So perhaps with a, a kind of rustle in the tomb, perhaps a <laughs> kind of cough as those lungs that have been dead for four days suddenly kick into action and Lazarus comes out of the tomb. What a scene it would have been. The, the kids picture Bibles. Maybe some of the children here, you've seen the story and Lazarus you know, comes out, doesn't he, in the, in the linen and everyone's cheering and happy. I wonder actually whether a few people might have been fainting, a few people terrified, a few other people cheering. I don't know. We don't know, do we? But when Jesus had said that he was the resurrection and the life, surely Mary and Martha hadn't expected anything quite like this. Their brother coming back to life as the funeral becomes a party, as weeping turns to joy. And of course, that's what Jesus, the resurrection and the life does. Weeping turns to joy, ultimately, as he offers eternal life. That's a great story, isn't it? The resurrection of Lazarus as it stands alone is remarkable. But it is only a sign. It's only an echo that points to an even more remarkable and miraculous event of a greater death and resurrection of Lazarus' dear friend, the Lord Jesus Christ. See, the signs of that are woven throughout this chapter. Verse 8, we're reminded there of the, of the threats to stone Jesus. Verse 18, we're the mention of Jerusalem, where, where we know that Jesus' hour of glory will come as he hangs on the cross. And do you remember the Garden of Gethsemane as Jesus prepares to go to the cross? He cried out to his father, Father, if you are willing, take this cup from me, yet not my will, but yours be done. Do you remember too that there came a deafening silence? Why? Well, God's delayed so that he might be glorified as he overthrew the horrors of death through the death of his son. But we're also pointed at the cross, aren't we, to Jesus' compassion. Not compassion just to a few friends, but his compassion to the whole world. 
as he prepared to go to the cross, Jesus didn't simply produce tears like he did in this chapter, but sweat like drops of blood, we're told in Luke's gospel, hit the ground. And yet through the act of his death on the cross, he would defeat the power of death itself. And far from being the end, he rose victoriously, didn't he, on the third day, smashing death to smithereens, proving true his claim that he is indeed the resurrection and the life, putting the final nail in the coffin, if you like, of that greatest of all enemies. The cross and the empty tomb prove that Jesus really is the resurrection and the life. So the question is, do you believe this? It's verse 26, it's there, isn't it? It's the question originally to Martha, but it's the question that should address each and every one of us tonight. Do you believe this? That he is the resurrection and the life. The stakes couldn't be higher. As it says earlier in John's Gospel, chapter 3, verse 36, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. But whoever rejects the Son will not see life, for God's wrath remains on them. As we finish, let me just say one word just to those who perhaps tonight are in the midst of suffering at the moment, perhaps struggling with old age, or in the trenches of suffering in one way or another. As you ponder John 11, Do you know that Jesus cares? Do you know that one day he will put an end to all suffering? You will be with him forever. That means you don't need to fear death in an ultimate way. The cross and the resurrection prove that Jesus conquered and crushed death once for all. That the same Jesus who raised Lazarus from the dead will one day raise us to be with him forever in glory. Those truths can banish fear today. A number of you will know the name Tim Keller. He's an author and, and and a preacher, very influential on many people's lives. And he he died. What was it? Three, four months ago. Uh, earlier this year, after a long battle with, with cancer. One of the last books that he wrote was a, one of his shorter books, um, and it was just entitled On Death. That's what it was called. And um, it's, not, it's not your classic kind of going away in August on holiday, I'll take a book in the bag book, perhaps. But it's actually a really, really helpful and good book. I'd definitely recommend it. And the words that he wrote in that were words that he believed right through to the end in his own painful battle with cancer. Let me just finish with the words that he wrote. He wrote this. The world world can only give us peace that says, it probably won't get that bad. Jesus' peace is different. It says, even the worst that can happen, your death, is ultimately the best thing that can happen. We all long for a place that is truly home. Jesus says that it awaits you.